just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. Who are Kenyatta and Jack? We're just friends who are Gen Xers, former Air Force brats, parents, taxpayers, and citizens of the Earth. And we're here to save it one podcast at a time. Welcome to another episode of Kenyatta and Jack Save the World. Um, If you've been with us from the beginning, this is episode eight. And as you have already guessed, I assume, I am Kenyatta. And with me is the ever vibrant Jack. Hi, Jack. Hello, Kenyatta. I wasn't feeling too vibrant last week, but my coronavirus virus scare is over. So I'm feeling much better, much better. We, We are all happy and grateful for it. Yes. Well. Today's a exciting episode for us. We have our first guest. It Yay. is, yes, it is <laughs> David from the Grace, Graceful Atheist Podcast. And um, David, if you'd like to say hi real quick, um, go ahead. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name's David. Uh, I do have a podcast called the Graceful Atheist Podcast, where we talk about the process of deconstruction and deconversion. Uh, and most importantly, what after that? Like, what is what do you do post deconversion? And something that I like to call secular grace. Yes, which is it's a fantastic concept. And if you go listen to his podcast, you will learn that it is a fantastic concept. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I did want to say I've been listening to your your show, uh, and I really love the the dynamic the two of you have. It's uh, it's pretty cool. Well, thank you, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, we did not know that. We had such great on-air chemistry. <laughs> we didn't. I mean, I don't know if um, Jack has mentioned it. We, we've known each other since um, grade school and, you know, all through high school. And then, you know, we went separate ways and we only reconnected a few years ago on Facebook. So yeah, that's that awesome. was just a happy accident, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we enjoy doing it. It's my bright spot of the week. <laughs> Really? Me too. (laughs) So anyway, I guess we need to go ahead and move on to our WTF. And this week, I am not going to have my WTF. I'm going to give it to David. So David, (laughs) you're our guest. Why don't you start with your WTF moment of the week? (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, I, I, thought about this because I knew I knew your format and I knew you might ask me. Uh, and the thing that has just been driving me crazy over the last several weeks is the slowness of getting out the rapid tests. Uh, mm-hmm. As of today, as we are taping uh, the, uh, and this is a PSA, the, <laughs> the uh, covidtest.gov is up and running at this point. You can get uh, free rapid tests. But uh, because I'm kind of a technical person um, and I and I like math, you know, we knew that this was going to be a problem way back in December, uh, mm-hmm. and it, and it just reminds me of March of 2020. You know, all the things that we did not do that we could have done, and when you're talking about exponentials, even very tiny mitigations that have very low effects have huge impacts over time. And right. Uh, you notice the thing that we haven't been talking about in December in the last couple of months is flattening the curve. 
And right. I don't know if you've looked at one of the uh, the curves lately, but it's basically a spike jutting straight up into the air. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. In exponential time, you, whatever mitigation you think of today is already too late. And so it just it bums me out that it has taken this long to get the uh, you know free and highly available rapid tests out until mm-hmm. now. Having said that, I'm glad they're here now, so uh, I guess I should be satisfied. <laughs> and my wife texted me hour ago and she's made our order already so excellent so kenyetta have you uh got your order in i plan on doing that as soon as we finish here and my mother called me earlier she's like you know they're sending them out i already put my order in i was like okay <laughs> i'm i'm going to assume david's got his in since i have it was his yes. wtf <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah the it is definitely not a curve. It is a very much a spike. Yes. <laughs> and I hopefully we've sort of done like they've done in Europe and now we're going to start hitting the downward trend, but I hope so too. Unfortunately, I think uh it will have been because of herd immunity, right? We've just so mm-hmm. many people have been infected at this point that uh yeah. that that exponential decay is going to happen at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Kenyatta, uh, you're going to say something? No, I agree 100%. I mean, it's it goes without saying that we had to lose so many lives to get to this point. But yeah, I, I agree. I Especially with David's comment about them taking so long. This should have happened at least six months ago. But sure. I mean, we had the opportunity now. And I hope that in addition to to letting people uh, be more aware of their status. This helps free up space in hospitals and emergency rooms and gives a mm-hmm. break to those overworked and heroic uh, healthcare workers because, you know, they're turning people away that have non-COVID-related issues at this point, and that's, it's unmanageable. So, yeah, and scary. Right. A heart attack. Yeah. Yeah, and so, you can't, you know, you can't get a bed because somebody is in there that's, you know, having severe issues with COVID. That possibly didn't have to be. Yep. That's also the sad part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, well, David, thanks for your excellent WTF. And Kenyatta, what is yours? Um, I've been sitting on this one for a while because... I thought it was like the funniest thing when I first read it. And for some reason, and I just, I know it's going to sound bizarre considering, you know, our podcast, but I thought it was just a little too off, off the rails for anything we'd done up until now. Okay. But <laughs> I was like, let me just go ahead. So um, this is a story from last month in December of 2021. Okay. And this has to do with the King Abdulaziz Camel Festival, which takes place in Saudi Arabia yearly now for the last six years, I believe. And what it includes is camel beauty contests. And, um, and camel breeding is a big deal in Saudi, and it makes sense that it is. Um, but um, the festival invites breeders from, you know, all over to compete for upwards of $60 million in prize money. Wow. The thing that's, of it is, though, that's a lot of money. Yeah. The Ooh. thing of it is, is 
this particular festival, um, some readers got in trouble for injecting their camels with Botox and giving them <laughs> facelifts <laughs> and cosmetic alterations to make them prettier. Oh, wow. So apparently the camels are judged on the shape of their heads, the necks, the humps. You know, if they dress them up in the in the nice drapes and capes and things, things like that. But apparently wow. in an effort to get that prize money, some breeders have been injecting their camels with Botox. Or I guess that's no worse, worse than flaming your horse. See, and that's exactly what I thought of <laughs> when I read this. I was like, is this the same thing? Just about. David, do you know what Fuegano horse is? I haven't the slightest idea. <laughs> Don't let him tell you. <laughs> I'll, I'll do the cliff note versions. In medieval times, people, you know, sold horses like we do cars now. And when a horse got too old and someone would come to look at the horse, they would put ills in their butt because the horses would run around better and look more lively. <laughs> And that was called Fwagging Your Horse. And they still do something similar in modern times. It's just they use ginger root. And so when they have horse competitions, they have to check to make sure they haven't been gingered. I see. <laughs> well, now I cannot unlearn that. You cannot. <laughs> but you did learn something new today. I so did. there's yeah. that. Absolutely. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> that's, but back to Kenyatta, as someone who spent some time in the Middle East, I'm not a fan of camels. Yeah. But if you can pretty them up, fantastic. <laughs> I just, like I said, I read it and I had to read it twice. I'm like, Botox in camels. I, I mean, the camels don't care what they look like. And, but when you're talking about this kind of money being involved, I kind of sort of get it, but I mean, these yeah. are camels for heaven's sakes. Come on. Right. And so apparently at this last year's competition, 40 camels were disqualified. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would make fun of them, but uh, you know, have you ever watched some of the dog shows in the United States? I mean, it's insane. <laughs> yeah, those are, no, are hilarious. No different. <laughs> That's true. That's, Definitely true. Well, I guess we're going to um, we're going to keep the WTF shorter this week, so we can get on to uh, interviewing Davis. Or I cannot speak today, um, David. Anyway, um, could you give us a rundown on sort of your Christian background, how you deconstructed, and then we can go on. Uh, afterwards to talk about uh, secular grace. Sure. I will try to keep this uh, to the, the relatively short version. Uh, <laughs> I say that I, I grew up as a cultural uh, Christian. So in my, when I was young, uh, everyone in my family talked about God, but we weren't going to church and I knew very little. Uh, and I often will joke that just like Douglas Adams, it's like, who is this God character anyway? And I, I would ask family members, so, you know, what is, what's, what's God all about? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I was always very curious, but I had a very severe 
uh, Methodist great grandmother where, you know, Christianity was about rules and you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you know, you're a sinner. Mm-hmm. So for the most part, um, I ignored uh, Christianity as, you know, in my, uh, as a young person and as, as like my first few years of high school. Uh, but the other part of my story, my family story is that there were a lot of drug and alcohol addiction in mm-hmm. the family, in particular for my mom. And after, you know, her, my entire life up to that point of her having addiction issues, she came to me one day and said, Jesus told me to get clean and sober. And I was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but the next day she was clean and the next day and the next day. And uh, eventually she said, here, you might want to take a look at this. And she bought me my first Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the way I'm wired, I, you know, somebody can't tell me to do something, but if you give me information to go explore, I'll go do that. So within about a year, I had read through the entire Bible and, uh, and, you know, came to my own faith, uh, separate from my mom's, but we, mm-hmm. we shared a lot of those early exciting moments. And the thing about Jesus that blew me away was it was the opposite of everything I'd seen of the hip, the hypocritical, judgmental rule following uh christianity (laughs) that i was aware of it was about hanging out with sinners and you know the 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 tax collectors and prostitutes and i came for the the sick and not the Mm -hmm. and your whitewashed tombs and all of that just spoke to me it was like i was i loved it and the concept of grace is really what made me a christian it was you know that god had forgiven my mom for all of those things that that she had done that he god had forgiven me for all of the sexual turmoil that was going on as a teenager Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh um i and i felt like you know the what the church is missing is an understanding of grace they've they're focused on the rules they're focused on judgment and they they've missed grace somehow uh so i became uh you know, I ju- I got to church eventually, and they didn't know what to do with me because I was 19 at the time, and they were like, "Well, why don't you help lead the youth group?" <laughs> so I actually read my Bible, so I I I jumped in with that, and I had a beloved youth pastor kind of as a mentor then, and he said, "You know, you could really do this, David. Uh, you know, you could go to Bible college and and be a pastor." And what's important about that is that I had as much as my family supported me and loved me, I had never had someone say, you could do college. You know, mm-hmm. what I mean? you can make this happen. And that was the kick in the pants that I needed. And I wound up uh, going to a Bible college with the great support of my, my grandparents. They helped me financially in a huge way. And I just ate it up. I had been a terrible student in high school. I was, you know, I was uh, really, really bad. <laughs> and I, I, I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> I discovered that I loved education, and mm-hmm. um, I sometimes joke that my Bible college professors did co- too good a job. They taught me critical thinking. They taught me good biblical exegesis, which is like the interpretation of, of the time period and the setting. They taught me good hermeneutics, which is the interpretation for how we apply it to today. And I, to this day, I say that the the elements of deconstruction and deconversion are built into Christianity. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, a push towards honesty, a, a push towards seeking the truth. Uh, and over about a 20 year span, 
that need for truth, that need for self-honesty um, began to eat away at the things that I'd been taught. Uh, so I was, the other thing you need to understand is that I was all in. I was the type of person mm -hmm. where, you know, if I was shy, but if we got into a conversation and it turned to spiritual matters, I was evangelizing. I was telling you about Jesus. <laughs> I was all in. And uh, I did ministry for a few years. Um, that didn't work out. I kind of burned out. I realized now it's obvious to me that I'm uh, much more of a technical person. I like to be in, mm -hmm. you know, off by myself working on some problem set. But uh, at, at the time, it was pretty devastating. But I remained mm -hmm. a Christian for many, many, many more years after that. The last few straws were, I kind of had deconstructed before deconstruction was a word, uh, of, you know, the inerrancy of the Bible. And, uh, you know, I had gay friends and I couldn't really accept that, that they were going to hell. So I was pretty much a universalist by the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, so I had been stripping away the things that I just couldn't accept. I had always been into science and math. And, and so, you know, I had never been a young earth creationist. I always believed mm. evolution, that kind of thing. But what it got down to was I realized that I was hanging on to the resurrection mm -hmm. and, that, and that that had to be literally true. Uh, Paul talks about in, in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised, then then we are of all men most to be pitied, right? You, you're mm -hmm. in your sins if Christ wasn't raised, and I, so that was the the one binary that I had to have be true. And my reasoning for believing that the resurrection took place began to erode. Uh, if you look at uh, the Bible, and even my Bible college professors taught me this. You know, the four gospel writers are anonymous. It wasn't. Matthew, the, uh, the apostle who wrote mm -hmm. Matthew. It wasn't uh, uh, John, the apostle who wrote John. These were anonymous recordings, and they had a theological argument to make. They were not mm -hmm. historical documents. They were what's called a hagiography, or really a biography. But if you think about, you know, today, if you watch a biography, you know that there's some skew there. Right. So, some things have been changed yeah, for the story. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so I finally came to grips with that. I had no real good objective reason for believing in the resurrection. And it was like a house of cards. The, the that was the end for me. Uh, and it happened uh, fast. It, you know, I have a friend of mine who says that the, it happened suddenly. And he says the suddenly uh, describes my recognition but the process took years. And I think that's <laughs> right. an accurate description. It, it was years in the making, but that, that very sudden moment of, I no longer believe. And uh, that was terrifying. Uh, my wife is very much a believer still. And uh, the thought of telling her was, was very scary. And <laughs> I did eventually do that. And she has been uh, amazing. It's also very difficult. It's a painful point in our marriage, but mm -hmm. uh, uh, but we love each other and we're trying to love each other through it. So, Okay. Um, I think Ken Geta has a few questions for you as well. Sure. I do. And actually, you may have really answered the first one I had in that. Um, was the process for you something that happened over a series of events or years? Or I believe you said it was culminating and it got to, I guess, the straw that finally broke you. We're like, oh, that's it. Was it 
Am I, did I understand that right as far as how your process went? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that is difficult to communicate is uh, when people hear uh, the deconvert story, they either focus on the first thing that started them down that road mm-hmm. or they focus on the last thing. Mm-hmm. But really, it is death by a thousand cuts. It is a mm. thousand things. Definitely. And so mm. I've identified a couple of things, you know, right? Uh, deconstructing the Bible and its authority or inerrancy. Uh, and for me, the last thing was, was why did I believe in the resurrection? And But there were a thousand points in between that that were just unanswered prayer, uh, watching uh, poverty in the world. And, uh, you know, there one of the things for me personally was checking, looking at apologetics as a believer, as a Christian, and fi- and finding myself going, this this argument is bad. It's it's weak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, so it was just a, a number of those things, and again, back to that idea of just suddenly becoming aware. Uh, I like to say that I I was honest with myself that I no longer believed, as opposed to saying that I walked away from my faith. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the faith walked away from me. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, right. Uh, so does that answer your question, Kenyana? It does. Yeah. It, it, it clarified, I, like I said, your initial explanation, but that, that last piece, that was, that was powerful. That was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know one of the things that irritates me is when somebody deconstructs, comes out as atheist there's always the well he didn't he never believed enough he really didn't believe he just wanted to sin he (laughs) never read the bible yeah well first of all if you don't believe in god don't believe in sin (laughs) right Right. (laughs) and generally speaking people that have deconverted probably have read more of the bible than the average Christian has, and that's one of the things that leads to <laughs> deconversion, yeah. as you know, hosting your show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely see that uh, in in my life. I, uh, if you ever talk to uh, you know a Christian leader, an apologist, or a pastor, they will very likely blame the victim. Right, mm-hmm. your, faith, your faith wasn't strong enough, or you didn't do, uh, you didn't pray enough, you didn't go to church enough, what have you. Uh, I especially see that with my guests. Uh, like I, it doesn't bother me about me. It bothers me for the, the, the people that I interview and, mm-hmm. and to hear the hoops that they have to jump through. So anytime I'm beginning a conversation with a believer, there's this weird point in which I'm trying to explain to them, I really was a dedicated Christian. (laughs) Right. So there's a way of defending that former faith, uh, which is just a bizarre uh, process. Yeah, it, it definitely is. It definitely is. Um, Well, could you go ahead and tell us, I'm assuming you came up with it, this concept of secular grace, which I love by the way. So if you want to go ahead and, Kenyatta can think of the next question for you. <laughs> Excellent. That sounds great. Yeah. Uh, as you could hear earlier, grace, Christian grace was a major part of my faith. And it was very much um, the need 
to be known, to be accepted for who I was, uh, good, bad, and ugly. And, and I felt that on a visceral level, right? Deep, deep level. And mm-hmm. then as I went to Bible college, I learned theology and I learned the intellectual side of the underpinnings of grace, of um, the justice plus mercy, the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the sacrifice that Jesus made. And, and so I ate it up. I called myself a grace junkie. Uh, that was, <laughs> uh, everything about Christianity, everything about the Bible, I interpreted through a filter of grace. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the deconstruction was letting go of that filter and just seeing the Bible for what it actually says directly. And that isn't always graceful. Uh, so about five minutes after, <laughs> after I admitted to myself that I no longer believed, I realized that the, the aspect of grace that I loved the most had no need for a supernatural element or what I call a vertical element, right? To, mm-hmm. From God to, to the person. It was person to person. And, and again, the, the impact of my mom's addiction comes in here in that my earliest spirituality was the 12 steps. And I sat into lots of meetings there where somebody, an alcoholic would get up and say, hi, I'm, I'm so-and-so I'm an alcoholic. And they would describe horrifying things that they had done. Mm-hmm. And there would be a room full of people there loving them and accepting them. And there was no judgment. And that was the kind of grace that I thought was life altering. Mm-hmm. And so again, that moment of recognition for me. And I realized that, that what makes grace powerful is people <laughs> loving right. people, right? It's me right. being vulnerable with someone else and providing the space for that person to be vulnerable with me. And, and then not running away screaming when they tell you something, some deep, dark secret about themselves, right? And vice versa. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to foster that idea. And I, I'm the first to admit there's nothing new under the sun here. I am not saying something particularly uh, insightful. This is really what Jesus was talking about. Right. Right? Uh, mm-hmm. From my perspective, Jesus was a humanist. And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that's what I'm trying to do here is to put the humanity into humanism. Uh, so I started to develop the idea of secular grace um, in 2015, 2016. I, like to, I have to point out now that uh, a book was... Um, published in 2017 by an Israeli professor named Dr. Dana Haifez. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Freebach Haifez. Uh, forgive me if I mispronounce her name. So it, I can't say that I coined the term. I think, I think we were kind of independently deriving the same concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to have her on the podcast at some point in time. Uh, I recommend her book. It's entitled okay. Secular Grace. She does, she's a much more educated than I am. It's a wonderful book. Uh, go pick it up. Uh, but I started to develop it. I started to write about it on the, on the blog, and I realized that I'm a terrible writer. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, but I really liked talking to people, just and having people tell their stories. And uh, so I'm answering a question now that you haven't asked. Why did I start the podcast? Mm-hmm. Uh, is that I needed some place to have deep conversations, and uh, something that occurred to me in the first year or so was that even my secular friends, but who had never had a faith system, didn't get it. 
And so, you know, you go to tell them, man, I, you know, I was, <laughs> the, can you believe what I used to believe? And now I, and now this is, you know, I'm trying to apply scientific and, you know, rationality and all these things to my life. And they'd be like, huh, okay. <laughs> and I'd be like, no, you don't understand. This was really, really important. Uh, so I started to realize there's this deep need for people who are in the middle of deconstruction or who have gone through it to connect with one another. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, you know, let me take this shot. Let's see, is there an audience for this? And I started asking people, would you want to be interviewed to tell your story? And, you know, I got responses and then I started to get listeners mm -hmm. <laughs> and it is snowballed into, uh, uh, you know, I think it's, it's a pretty successful podcast at this point. And we've got a, we're trying to build a community. Uh, we've got a, a Facebook group uh, that I'll plug now uh, called Deconversion Anonymous. And, uh, and I've just been amazed at how, People care for one another. They are they are showing uh, secular grace for each other. That's definitely true. I'm a member of that Facebook group, and we have a book club. Actually, we're about to st start a second book club. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> and we have uh, weekly meetups via what is it? Facebook meetup thing, whatever Room it's things, called. Yeah, yeah. And it's a great group of people. Yeah, look yeah. it up and join. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yeah. So let me ask you, David, um, and from what I'm understanding, your podcast is, like you said, a means for you to have conversations about these things. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm sure you've probably been probably a great resource and uh, a well of support for people that are going through deconstruction right now. When you got to that point, um, did you find that you had outside of, you know, maybe family and friends that maybe didn't quite understand, but they were still supporting you outside of them. Did you find many resources that helped you work through what you were feeling and where you were trying to get to? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, so I deconverted in 2015. There were a handful of podcasts out there. So uh, everyone's agnostic was huge. Mm. Um, uh, Ryan Bell started uh, Life After God, shortly thereafter, it was like within months, mm -hmm. uh, I started started listening to that. Uh, but my personality type uh, is, uh, you know, I have to figure things out on my own. So uh, really what I did was I went and read like a pile of books. <laughs> I read uh, I read some some very important books that uh, to me, uh, Greg Epstein's uh, Good Without God is fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit later on, I read Catherine Osment's Grace Without God. I did read some of the uh, Four Horsemen Atheists books, but in many ways, they were just telling me what I already thought. So they weren't, <laughs> quite, they weren't quite as useful. I was much more interested in now what? Like, how do we thrive as human beings? And, and that was what I was looking for. And, mm -hmm. and I didn't see a lot of that. Uh, and that was part of the impetus of starting the podcast myself. Mm, okay. So once you, as you went through deconstruction and, and once you got to a point where you were comfortable with your beliefs at that time, was there ever a point that as hard as you went when you still believed and you were still um, practicing, as hard as you witnessed the people for that, once you were on the other side of it, did you witness as hard or <laughs> quote unquote the other side? Yeah. Now that, that's a great question. And, and this actually tees up another important part for me. When I first uh, deconverted, what you asked about resources, and, and I happened to mention the 
four horsemen. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of the content uh, was very aggressive. It was debate oriented. It was what I like to call hyper rationalist. Uh, and it, it felt like to me, it was missing the full human experience of deconstruction. And, and then again, post deconstruction, what do we do? And that was the niche that I was trying to fill. I, because my wife is a believer, uh, I knew really early that this was not something I wanted to take away from her. Uh, it is, I know that when I was a believer and really six months before my deconversion had you, you know, you come to me and said, uh, you know, you're going to deconvert and this is why I would have said you're absolutely insane. And I would have arg argued with you and given you every apologetic answer you can think of. Uh, so I know that you can't argue a person out of faith. Uh, mm -hmm. What I have been very explicit about is not taking, try, it's not my job to take away people's faith. It's not my job to argue them out of their faith. Mm -hmm. uh, and in some ways, and I've got lots of friends who do this, <laughs> uh, I feel like counter apologetics, the arguments against apologetic arguments are counterproductive. Uh, they, mm -hmm. They're kind of missing the point and mm -hmm. they tend to drive both parties deeper into their corners rather than, than allowing for good conversation. Mm -hmm. right. One of the reasons I think this is so common is if you're a big theology nerd as a believer, it's very natural to become a philosophy nerd the second you're out and you mm -hmm. find just the opposing arguments and, and it's just equal but opposite. Uh, and my, uh, my thing is about, I, I am a, an apologist for doubt. If you are already having doubts, if you're already having questions, I know what that feels like on a visceral level. Mm -hmm. I know how isolating and alone it feels to be sitting in a church pew doubting God. And that's who I care about. And that is who I, I want to provide space for. I'm not going to try to argue somebody or even convince someone out of their faith. Uh, but if they're already asking questions, I'm going to provide the space and the lack of judgment uh, for them to do so. Okay. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. One of the sort of thoughts I have, I will never try to take someone who's, say, a young earth creationist and be like, no, the earth is this old. What I will say is, mathematically, the earth can't be 6,000 years old. You, it just can't with yeah. number of people, population, all of that. But I was like, but maybe the earth is 50,000 years old. And if you can get somebody to believe, well, you know what? You're right. Because 50,000 years versus 4 billion is still young earth, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. Yes. <Yeah. laughs> and um, as crazy as it sounds, sloths could not get to South America in 3,000 years. Right. The maximum they move in a day is a hundred yards. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> so if you can, that's sort of my thing. If I can get you to realize, okay, 6,000 years is a bit ridiculous and move to 50, that sort of opens the door just <laughs> a, a little bit. Right. But like you, I don't ever want to try to talk someone out of their faith. Right. If, that's what you need. That's what you need. <laughs> I'm not yeah. going to tell you against it. And to be really clear, you know, if I had a family member or a friend who's a believer and they came to me and, you know, that they were doubting young earth creationism, 
I would mostly just ask them questions about why they think this or that. And, you know, have you thought about it from this perspective without trying to lead them one direction or the other, just to provide mm-hmm. the space for them to ask the questions. I truly believe that the, you know, the examined life is better. And so mm-hmm. the, if a believer goes through a process of questioning and doubting and goes and seeks answers that satisfy them, mm-hmm. they are a they are better at the end of that process if they remain in their faith or if they don't, uh, as opposed to having ignored those questions and tried to avoid them entirely. Yep, that makes yeah, sense. I agree. And I only ask that question because, and maybe this is just my limited life experience. I don't know. But um, the folks I've come across that are self-proclaimed atheists don't have the most um, you can you can be honest. <laughs> <laughs> there are a bit of buttholes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And the, and the and you like you were saying they honestly are trying to to de- debate people into the ground yeah. over why their faith doesn't make sense or worse yet why they're foolish for believing what they do. And so I'm not going to lie. I you know, I had a moment when um and even though i know jack is i just had a moment when he was um discussing having one of you on because i'm open-minded as all get out but (laughs) i was just like okay what is this going to turn out to be so that's when i went and checked out your your podcast and i was very pleasantly surprised because you had a, a perspective that i hadn't seen really at all from other people who consider themselves atheists it was concise it was humane and it most of all it was kind Mm. and it was the understanding that we need to allow room for humans to be humans basically yeah Yeah. that that is honestly the greatest compliment you could give me kenyatta i really appreciate that i'm just telling the truth i will tell you (laughs) that can kenyatta doesn't hold back yeah yeah (laughs) i do want to just mention that you know I, i am a great critic of uh, the new atheist movement and and you know youtube atheism <laughs> and uh, I, i'm you know i basically the the work that i'm trying to do is is the opposite of that in many ways it is mm-hmm. you know, trying to say just what kenyatta said you know that we're all human beings we all have beliefs that some of which we inherited some of which we came to ourselves uh that process can go astray at times uh, and it could happen to me today. It could happen to me tomorrow. Um, you know, but that just attacking somebody for what they believe and calling them stupid, it's just, it's counterproductive. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't meet the goals that the purported goals of the atheists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just, as you said, inhumane, it's just cruel. Yeah. Yeah. And the person you're talking to is going to have the tendency to dig in. Yeah. That's <laughs> you know, making your argument even less effective. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. One of the things I've appreciated most about um, listening to your podcast is that you frequently remind people that you need to show yourself grace for, you know, beliefs and actions when you were a believer. Yeah. For example, towards LGBTQ. Plus, my ADD mind won't let me say that. (laughs) Yeah. But for example, you know, as an example, and you've pointed that out multiple times, and it's something that people need to hear 
in general, Mm -hmm. whether or not you have deconstructed, because you shouldn't be the same person at 50 that you were at 25. Yeah, yeah. Heaven forbid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, the issue of LGBTQ is so important. Uh, I think that you know, in 50 to 100 years, the vast majority of churches will be LGBTQ affirming, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, if anything, just from having people die out, uh, right? The culture is mm-hmm. going to move on. And, and I mean, that writing is just on the wall. So, so many of my guests, whether they are uh, LGBTQ themselves or they're just uh, affirming, will say that that was a huge element of their deconstruction is that I have this friend and I love them and how could I think they're going to hell? Uh, and, you know, I had similar experiences as well. And I, to the heart of your, your point, uh, Jack, is, yeah, I feel terrible for, you know, some of the things that I said or didn't say, really mm-hmm. mostly what I didn't say. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't as accepting as I would like to have been uh, mm-hmm. and what I'm trying to be today. Uh, and you do need to have a bit of grace with yourself in the sense that when you're a part of a community like that, um, you take on the belief systems of the community, and it is very, very hard to see outside of that bubble. Um, mm-hmm. And especially when you have now broken out of the bubble and you're trying to um, reestablish what it is, what your morals are, what you do care about. Uh, Beating yourself up for past mistakes is just not helpful. And uh, being able to move forward and love people uh, as they are is is uh, going to be much more productive than looking back and thinking about how terrible uh, you may have behaved. Yeah, yeah, definitely need to show some self forgiveness. <laughs> yeah, Kenyatta, you got a, another question? I I feel like I know David because. I've listened to his show for so long, his podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, whereas I know you're sort of new, so ask away, Kenyatta. I will do that. And <laughs> let me, well, as you were, I mean, I guess even now, because when, when, I, when I heard you say, you know, earlier, David, is that it was a struggle for you when you first came to the realization and to an extent thereafter for a while so when you have those moments those i guess you call valleys that you get into because we all do what keeps you going what's your how do you define what you would call faith i guess you'd say yeah so and this is why i rely on the concept of secular grace because there's a lot going on under the hood there that um that i need to kind of expand upon what what I realized was the relationships that we have with each other are the meaningful things. The most important thing in in my life is my relationship with my wife and my kids. Mm -hmm. And the connection that I have with my friends and colleagues and, uh, and then now with the podcast, with people that I, strangers that I meet that tell me their stories, it's just amazing. The, the, and I'll use scare quotes here, but the spiritual satisfaction that I get from those conversations. Uh, so what I find meaningful is, is the, are those relationships. And uh, to try to give you a, something memorable, I, I say that the secular ABCs of spirituality <laughs> are awe, 
the experience of awe. And that can be as simple as being out in nature, uh, being, I like to be outside. I like the mountains. I love the ocean. Uh, and it's hard to uh, sit, be in the ocean with the waves uh, bobbing you up and down or crashing on your head and not be awe-inspired, right? This thing mm-hmm. is literally bigger than you are. And, uh, and we have pigeonholed or boxed in the experience of awe to only count within a religious context. Mm-hmm. And my argument is that that's a human experience and we mm-hmm. experience awe in different contexts and it's okay to seek awe-inspiring, awesome uh, experiences. Uh, you know, and you, I'm sorry. Yeah, please. You say that in what that brought to mind to me immediately is hearing babies laugh. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that is like the most amazing thing ever. I mean, no one beat my baby when she yes. was a baby. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah. you know, if I'm out, you know, in the store where I am and two hours, even if I don't see the baby and their parents, if I hear a baby laugh, I'm just mm-hmm. like, oh my God, that's the sweetest thing ever. Yeah. So yeah. I get that. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> well, and, uh, you know, parenthood, it, uh, I mean, I can't, I'm sure Kenya, you have that same experience, but I mean, I was entirely unprepared for how much love I felt for my daughters when they were born. Like, it, it's so visceral. It's such a human experience, uh, but you cannot know that until it's happened to you. Uh, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's those kinds of things exactly that, that are the meaningful elements of our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm trying not to be too pedantic here, but the ABC, <laughs> so A, A for awe, uh, B is for belonging. Uh, and this is about being a part of a group. This is the community aspect we're what we're witnessing this in the United States everywhere where where people are identifying with a group that may be detrimental to themselves and that very group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's such a human need. Uh, I don't know if you guys are sports fans, but if you're a fan of a particular team, <laughs> that is that's some belonging, man. You feel totally connected to that team and you're completely irrational about it. Doesn't matter if they're at the bottom of the league, right? That's, Sorry, uh, Dallas. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So I wore I, should, a I, work I, shirt. I hate to tell you, I'm a 49ers fan. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm so I'm more college, love the University of Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah. I wore a work shirt for two years on Saturday, whether I was at work or not, because they never lost when I was wearing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this is what uh, religious communities do really well. Uh, I often, if I get the chance to talk to a pastor who's actually listening, I say, my best advice to you is have more potlucks. Um, <laughs> you, you are building connections between people, the opportunities for people to connect with one another. And <laughs> that belonging uh, is deeply rooted. We are social animals and we need that. And the great tragedy of the COVID-19 pandemic is right when we needed each other, we were forced to stay away. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we will be unpeeling the onion of trauma uh, that we have all experienced over the last two years as we were forced to, to stay away from each other. My, uh, my mother-in-law her Well, my wife's family, they're big huggers. I don't hug. In fact, I'm wearing a shirt 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. And um, it says, I don't hug listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when the pandemic started, my mother-in-law's like, oh, it just sucks. You can't hug anymore. And I'm, she's like, well, except for you, the world <laughs> has come to you. And I'm yes. like, finally, <laughs> yeah. my plan is complete. <laughs> yeah. 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 Maybe that's why Fauci engineered because he's not a hugger. <laughs> Sorry. <Yes. Yeah. laughs> So what was C? You said the yes, ABCs, we've done thank A you and so B. Uh, yeah, I got to wrap it up with a bow here. So where B is belonging to the group, C is the one-to-one -one connection. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I like to like try to get people to feel this. Like, uh, do you remember, you know, when you're going through puberty and you tell your best friend about your first crush? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's that. It's, the, it's that I told somebody that I was scared to tell them something deep about me and they didn't run away. Um, you know, uh, or maybe they made fun of you, but like, <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know what I'm saying? Good and, friends and, do. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and it's not, it's, I think one thing that the church has a good grasp on or the, in the Catholic church specifically here is this idea of confession. Confession is cathartic. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm. the difference of what I'm describing though is, it, you get to choose who you are that vulnerable with. You do so mm -hmm. with someone you trust deeply. Uh, you do not need to do this on Facebook. You do not need to do this with a priest. Uh, mm -hmm. But your best friend, your your life partner, the, the person that you know you can be the most authentic, the most real with, that connection, uh, that the C, is one of the most meaningful uh, things in our lives. And I'm going to wrap this all the way back to your question, Kenyatta. Was, you know, <laughs> <laughs> how, how do I deal with kind of the darker times or the valleys in life? Uh, you know, I hang on to the people I love and I, I intentionally uh, try to be vulnerable with them and intentionally try to elicit vulnerability from them. And, and as an extension in my public life, I'm doing that uh, it, with the podcast in connecting with the community of the, de the deconstructing and deconverting. And, just so you know, David, going on and on, that is nothing that is frowned upon here because that's our thing. So <laughs> don't worry about it. Okay. I feel like yeah. I'm, I'm home. I'm in good company. Yeah. You are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we um, uh, we can go on. Generally, we finish recording and talk for like another two hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I... I I like the way you use the word intentional because that for me personally, and this isn't necessarily any kind of religious or spiritual aspect, but just mm -hmm. in general in my life, I've been thinking about ways that I need to be more intentional. Mm -hmm. And um, I think about, you know, the kind of relationships that I have with my friends and my family that just because like they're my family doesn't mean they have to love me. It just so <laughs> happens that they do. Yes. And yeah. that's something that I, I'm doing better on not taking for granted mm -hmm. and being more intentional, like you said, with how I feel about them and more than anything that I feel, I guess, honored that they trust me enough to come to me and confide in me. So mm -hmm. I like that idea about connection mm -hmm. that, that resonates. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I, I love that too. Sometimes I'm, I'm a kind of 
type of person that once you're my friend, you're my friend. If we don't talk for a month and then we talk in my mind, we're just finishing the conversation from five minutes ago. (laughs) And I know that not everybody operates like that, (laughs) Yeah, but I need to be more intentional, you know, with my closer friends and not do that, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah. I'm, Um, I'm pretty bad at it too. Uh, Like I've got very good friends where, you know, six months, a year will go by before we chat with each other. I've tried uh, to be better at it, you know, during this, Mm -hmm. I'm like, let's do a zoom. Um, And that's, you know, sometimes we do it well, we'll do like every month, that kind of thing. Uh, And then sometimes we'll fall off the wagon, but like Mm -hmm. just those attempts and we know we love each other. And it's, you know, my friends are just like what you're describing, Jack, you know, a year goes by and it's just like, you know, we're nothing has happened. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're still, uh, uh, it's, it's like just yesterday we chatted with each other. So, uh, but it is that idea of be a little proactive, take a couple of steps to, you know, Hey, that friend of mine, I haven't talked to them. It's been a long time. Hey, let's chat on zoom. You know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things I'm oddly proud of stuff, whatever is with my uh, friendship with my best friend, Ralph, I taught myself Photoshop so I could Photoshop our heads to the stepbrothers <laughs> Olin Mills poster. <laughs> and I gave it to him for Christmas. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. Uh, his reaction was priceless. <laughs> it was totally <laughs> worth it just yeah. to see his reaction. Yeah. Um, Kenyatta has seen it. And if you go to our Facebook page, you can see the picture as well. <laughs> but. Anyway, uh, the picture and Ralph's reaction was epic. <laughs> like I was like, I'm watching this third party and I'm over here just doubled over. I'm like, I, and I says to Jack, I was like, so I guess he liked it. Or? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he definitely did said he was hanging it in the living room above the TV. That's awesome. Whether his wife liked it or not. <laughs> Um, so I had a question now it's, now it's lost me. <laughs> I can, I can roll on with another topic if you want to, Sure. Uh, yeah. that is, that's community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we talked about that B for belonging. And I, I think that one of the great challenges for people who deconstruct or deconvert, uh, you know, if they no longer attend a religious, uh, community ceremony of some kind or another is finding a place to be having, having a community mm-hmm. to be a part of. And this, I think is where in particular, the, like the new atheists, the, the earlier movement uh, was really bad. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I find that it's still very difficult to provide the options here. Now we've all been in uh, pandemic mode for quite a while here. So I still don't recommend necessarily that you go hang out with each other face to face, but uh, eventually <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, and one of the things that we've been trying to do with the with the podcast group is to say, uh, you know, okay, this is is the least of all uh, the best options, but uh, it's at least an option. And here we have the the Facebook group for people to connect with each other. And uh, again, I thought before we set this up, I thought uh, this is you know it's probably not going to work out. People, you know, I, I just didn't think that it would be useful. And I've just been amazed at watching people. Uh, connect with each other. Uh, they, the, somebody will say something, you know, pretty vulnerable and 
five people will say, yeah, that's my experience too. And it's that recognition of you're telling my story uh, that mm -hmm. is, I think, really, really important. Um, uh, but I think, uh, you know, a challenge that I don't think we've solved yet is real world in, in the flesh uh, community. Uh, and uh, I, I'm open for, for ideas if you guys have any. <laughs> I, I, would, I would love to see that happen. And I think, uh, well, was it last episode, Jack, where we were talking and I'm, I came up or I was throwing around the idea that for wholesale societal shifts, it has to start with the individual. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that change has to come from how each of us feels about ourselves and how we feel about the people around us and for the things that we don't know educate ourselves and for the things that we do know educate ourselves further mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i mean that's it's idealistic i know because people are people and there's always going to be some people who thrive off of being counter or considering themselves outliers which most of the time they're just buttholes but <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> to me as simplistic as it may sound I really feel like you were saying, being able to be vulnerable. Not everybody needs to know, but right. when you've got the right person or people in front of you, you'll know who you can open up to and how much. And I think that makes a tremendous amount of difference on knowing you're not alone in whatever you're going through, whether it's, you know, a crisis of faith or you know, us being separated from each other or being anxious around each other, even yeah. a little bit, I think helps. And it, I think it just being able to forgive yourself and forgive others goes a long way. Yeah. Does that, sure. did I just go off the rails? Or does <laughs> no, <laughs> no. no, absolutely. I think, I think community is, is healing. Uh, and, and I would take it one step further and say that, it, you know, the, political divides that we have, the racial divides that we have, uh, it, it's hard to hate somebody who you've, uh, you know, had a potluck with. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. If we can figure out ways to uh, bring people who wouldn't otherwise ever talk to one another uh, together mm -hmm. and, you know, break bread, literally, uh, you know, amazing things can happen because human beings want to connect with each other and they will. Uh, and, you know, if, if you meet somebody who's diametrically opposed to you, but you get in a conversation and find out they love dogs and you love dogs, <laughs> you know, you're going to find these human connection points where it's hard to hate that person. Now you may still want to change their mind about something, but, right. but you're no longer seeing them as less than human or other than, uh, mm -hmm. and I just, I just think community is, is the answer to a lot of our problems. Mm -hmm. And absolutely sort of tying into the grace and everything. For example, I know a lot of sort of, conservative leaning people get upset if they hear a person of color say, well, when our kid becomes a teenager, we have to have the talk. Mm. That's not the sex talk. That's this is how you behave if you get pulled over. Well, rather than get upset, you need to possibly talk to a person of color. Why do you have to do this? And at the same time, a person of color shouldn't get upset with you or, you know, be jerky because you've asked that question. But asking that question can bring us together as people. And if more people, you know, would do that, that could really 
get past a lot of stuff, but you have to be willing to ask it in a non-jerky way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's I think that's probably the basis of why you and I get along as well as we do, Jack, because we've been able to talk about things like that mm-hmm. because we know each other. Mm. Um, yeah. In that we we have the same kind of weird sense of humor. <laughs> right. <laughs> but more than anything, we're not, I don't think we're coming to each other with expectations or expecting the other to be some kind of spokesman for anything. Right. We're right. just stating our viewpoints and our opinions, and we're comfortable with being vulnerable to each other. So, like I said, and I, I, going back to what you were saying, David, about community being tantamount, the all important. Um, I would love to see it. And like you were saying, potlucks, <laughs> we would have those at work, you know. Yeah maybe once a month or we would do something called wine and cheese mm-hmm. and the wine was sparkling wine, obviously, yeah. but we would do those and everybody would bring in a little something, you know, the little snack and it would be amazing. No matter what day any of us were having, as soon as it was time to get up and get together and put our place together, all of a sudden everybody's talking and chatting and laughing. It was just like an instant, you know, you could have mm-hmm. had a disagreement with somebody the week before and all of a sudden, now we're we're coalescing around a common goal. It's exactly. cheese. Exactly. How can you mad at cheese? That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, so can I- yet in our case, it's hard to not have a bond once you've been in Mrs. Shackelford's Christmas <laughs> on Mars Christmas play as an in elementary some, student. So we are the world. Yes. Eleven times. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but so, I seriously though, I, you know, you guys are showing how to do this, right? That mm-hmm. you have a friendship, you're able to have uh, different perspectives and communicate with each other. You are demonstrating how you make this happen. I mean, I think we do our best, yeah. <laughs> we do. We, we, we do. And our- I don't we don't necessarily agree with each other on every single point, sure, of course but not. we can say our each side of that, whatever that topic is and respect each other for whatever mm-hmm. side we have on it. And we're not, we're not trying to push buttons or argue or debate or anything like that. And going back to what you mentioned about um, having the talk with kids, I think we touched on that some episodes ago and and, ju- and just to add to that, I know you were saying it's helpful if the person asking the question, you know, keeps an open mind and listens and, mm-hmm. and tries to be mm-hmm. understanding of the perspectives of a person of color. But I'll tell you what, as many times, and I, I can't say I've had to answer it personally, but as many times as often, but as many times as I've seen the question posed to people of color, there's an unintentional underlying frustration of having to answer it again and again and again and having to explain yourself. And that's one of the things that drives me crazy personally is constantly explaining myself. Mm -hmm. And so when you're as a person of color or a black person, let's say is put in a position of having to explain, this is why I do this. This is why it's important. And then have someone to discount you over and over and again, because it didn't happen to them. You can't help 
unfortunately, the frustration, you can't bear it as much as you want to. Right. But yeah. just understandable. I, I, yes. <laughs> I, I, I loved your episode on, on MLK and talking about Kaepernick and the quote unquote right way to protest. It's like, mm-hmm. it's so dire. And the, and to be told you're not protesting the right way, I, 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 I <laughs> the anger that a person must feel, I, I just, I, that's amazing. And, um, I, I wish I could be more articulate here. I just think that I take it on my like a responsibility for me to try to communicate, to use the term code switching. Mm. Uh, I remember when Kaepernick uh, knelt and I was having a conversation with my conservative family members and I was having that exact conversation. Like, how would you like him to protest the fact that uh, police are killing black people? You know, how, wh- what's the right way to do that? And, and trying to communicate in a way that they could hear what I was trying to say. Uh, and I, you know, I try, I try always to be the communicator, to try to translate in such a way that that person is going to hear and understand. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think too many conversations nowadays, you know, one person is talking the other person is just waiting for them to finish. Mm. They're not mm. really listening. They're not taking it in and they're not responding in kind. They're just waiting to be able to, to say their point and be done with it. Mm-hmm. So, and when you're, you need to have those serious kind of conversations, it's difficult when one or both parties is already on the defensive right. or, you know, to one degree or another. And I think that's a lot of people nowadays on, depending on what issue you're talking about, whether it's political or whether it's religious or whether it's this issue of, you know, this public health travesty we have going on. There's so many people are diametrically on one side or the other. In some of those instances, somebody, I'm going to say it, some of those instances, some people are more right than the other. But mm-hmm. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna let this yeah. devolve into that. <laughs> right. Well, that is correct. Yeah. To tie in what David was saying earlier about liking to talk to people, hear their stories, and whatnot. That's sort of what started uh, Kenyatta and I's podcast on my other podcast. I wanted to know if growing up on a military base, her perspective was different than mine because mm-hmm. obviously she's black and a female. Yeah. I loved growing up on a military base. I thought it was awesome, but that doesn't mean she had that same viewpoint. And I wanted to know her thoughts and, and, you know, the whole story and, you know, look at us now (laughs) (laughs) saving the world. Yeah, that's right. And you saying that just brought to mind another question for David out of the folks that you've talked to um, that have either been going through the construction or had already gone through it and wanted to share their stories. How many of those folks have you followed up with after you've um, had them on as guests and have you found any of them still in flux or they had settled on one position or another? Uh, So the, the, the Facebook community is an opportunity for people who had been guests to uh, interact with each other. So I get to see a bit more of their story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't say that I, that I, 
you know, it's not a pastoral role. So I'm not checking in on mm-hmm. people to find out how, how they're doing uh, later down the road. Right. But I think the heart of your question, by the time somebody decides they want to tell their story on my podcast, they probably have a relatively solid understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want listeners, wherever they are on the spec- that spectrum of from faith to doubt to, to atheism, what have you, uh, to be, I, I hope that the podcast is palatable for that whole spectrum. Uh, but by the time somebody's telling me their story, they, they know where they are, right? And in fact, I'd go one step further. I've had a few people say, hey, I just deconverted a month ago. Can I tell my story? And I will generally say no to that mm-hmm. uh, because they're in a whole lot of pain still. They're, mm-hmm. They don't yeah. know, uh, you know what they think yet. And I don't want them to be obligated to uh, communicate that in some kind of public way that they'll then be held uh, accountable for down mm-hmm. the road, right? So mm-hmm. I like to say, give it a year, then come back to me, that kind of thing. Uh, I have broken that rule before, but uh, but mostly I try to to say, you know, let, let's let a year go by before we have a mm-hmm. public display of, of this new change of mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, it's, we've been talking for over an hour again. <laughs> and David, I know you said you're going to have to get off here. So if you want to go ahead and plug your podcast in the Facebook page one more time, anything else you want to uh, plug? Yes. Sure. The time. <laughs> yeah. First, thank you guys for inviting me on. This has oh, been a welcome. lot of fun. I really appreciate it. I am a Gen Xer, so I think I kind of fit in. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so we gotta, you know, represent the old people. Uh, That's right. So I have a podcast called uh, Graceful Atheist Podcast. It is available on all the major platforms: Apple, Spotify, what have you. Um, you can Google Graceful Atheist, and you'll find it. You can Google Secular Grace, and you'll find it. Uh, on Facebook, uh, we have a, a not secret, but a private group. So if you join, you're uh, anonymous. And that is at facebook.com slash groups slash deconversion. Uh, we will ask you a couple of questions to write out your response just to say that uh, we're not just letting anybody come in. Uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, so tell us a bit about your story, that kind of thing. Uh, but I absolutely encourage people to, uh, to do both, listen to the podcast and come join the community. All right. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank um, you very much, David. It, thank you. Guys. It was a great chat. I I loved mm-hmm. it. <laughs> and I guess this is it, David, once again, thank you, everybody listening. Hope you have a great week and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye. 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 As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review, hit that like button, and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback is valuable, and we welcome it. If you would like to contact, connect with, or just want to see what we talk about between episodes, you can find us on Facebook under our podcast name, on Instagram at K-A-Y-A-N-D-J-A-Y-S-T-W, our website, podpage.com, slash Kenyatta-Jack-Save-The-World, or email at k.j.savetheworld at gmail.com. If you would like to learn about and contribute to our chosen charities, you can do so at Service Dog Project at servicedogproject.org 
and Black Women's Health Initiative at BWHI.org. Kenyatta and Jack Save the World is a product of Hyper Focus Podcasts.